Well, let me welcome everyone who's here this morning. And we do have a little bit uh, smaller crowd, as we said earlier, than we normally have, and yet we have a pretty good crowd here. I know we have visitors in, the, in our midst, and we're really glad you're here. Um, hopefully, we will treat you in such a way you'll want to come back and be with us again in the future. And most importantly, as we study the Word of God together, you'll have a greater appreciation for it and for our emphasis upon it, and that in turn will make you want to be part of what we're doing here. We do respect the Word of God, and we do respect God. And this morning's lesson, as we go back and into a discussion of our theme, and obviously we are talking about holiness, we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, you shall be holy, for I am holy, or be holy, for I am holy. I won't talk so much this morning, I won't use the term relationship, even though everything I'll be saying in one sense will have to do with our relationship with God. But we are going to emphasize this morning the holiness of God. Notice in 1 Peter 1 and verse 16, for I am holy. Now this, and I'll tell you up front as I do this lesson, this is a daunting lesson for me. Um, and what I mean by that is whenever I have to talk about God and the holiness of God, it's a little overwhelming. And you begin to contemplate God, and we are merely human beings, so that's difficult to do. And then when you talk about the holiness of God, and let's just get into that for a moment... When we talk about the idea of holy, remember I put up this definition in the lesson a couple of weeks ago, in, and truly God is set apart in an infinite sense, in the greatest of senses. God is set apart, as God himself says in Psalm 46 and verse 10, I am God, I will be exalted. And so to try to preach about that, to try to express that from the pulpit, that's a little overwhelming. But God is holy. God is set apart. And we want to maintain that idea throughout the lesson this morning. You may notice also in the definition that to be holy is to be different or unlike. And in fact carries with it the implication that it is different from the world. Now certainly when we apply that to ourselves, we know what that means to live differently from the world talk a lot more about that in tonight's lesson or this afternoon's lesson. But God is different or unlike anything that we know or we see or perhaps we even perceive. God is certainly different from the world. And though man may sometimes attempt to bring God down, as it were, to our level, in fact, what God would say is, I am God and not man in Hosea 11. So there has to be that maintaining of the difference of God from ourselves. He is God. We are human. We are man. And finally, something that is holy is distinctly identified with God, or it is, and let's just go down to the bare idea, it is distinct. Now when we speak of something being distinct, we speak of uniqueness. We speak of oneness. We speak of the only thing like that. If, we, if I were to say to you, those of you that are familiar with, with precious gems, if I were to say the Hope Diamond, some of you would immediately conjure up an image of this magnificent diamond that's in the museum that people look at in awe 
and so forth and so on, especially those of you that really like diamonds. That's a a one-of-a-kind. There isn't anything else like the Hope Diamond. Well, God, in a much greater sense, is distinct. He is the only one. I, I battled with myself over what verses to put down here. And I started to put a verse from Isaiah where God said, I alone am holy. But I, in fact, decided to go with the passage out of Isaiah because this is what makes God so distinct. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. And the more I thought about that verse, the more I thought how distinct God is from us. God is unique. God is different. There is only one God who thinks like He thinks. There is only one God who does like He does. Only God would be God. And we can think in a myriad of situations, but let's just think in terms of God's creation of man, and God says to man, you don't sin. And if you do, you die. And to a human, and in a human way of thinking, that would be the end of it. And it still is to many people. Many people would look at themselves, Wes talks to people, I talk to people, perhaps you talk to people, and they've done something. Now, they may have done a lot of things, but that thing they've done, they will tell you, or that thing that is in their life, they will tell you that it is that that will keep them from God. It is that that will keep them out of heaven. And that's the way they think. It's not the way God thinks. And even though God may say, in the day you sin, you die, God, even in saying that, had a plan where He could have said to Himself, but I know how I'm going to take care of that. Because God's thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways are not our ways. They are higher. Much, much higher. And so this morning as we begin to contemplate God, I want us to look at the classic idea of God. God has been pictured by man in ancient times, from ancient times, as high and lifted up. If he looked at the tallest mountain. And even as the mountains apparently grew after the flood, as he looked at the highest of the high, the Mount Everest of the world, if you will, to him, God was that high. You think of the Tower of Babel and wanting to build a tower into the heavens. Man has thought of God as being out there, up there. God is high and lifted up. But I, as a human being, I am down here. Now, Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 2. And this is our passage we're emphasizing throughout the quarter. And I'm going to touch upon it in a number of lessons. But let's just look at verse 2. It shall come to pass in the last days, and we're in the last days. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established, notice, in the top of the mountains. And I'm just going to touch on that part this morning. Because that's the way we see God. And that's the way God would picture Himself. I'm up here. You're down there. We see that. I'm down here. God is up there. So how in the world can even the best of people traverse such a mountain? And you think of Mount Everest. Very few people ever climb Mount Everest. In a spiritual sense, some people would be willing to say, none of us ever climb this mountain. 
None of us ever in life, no matter how hard we try, reach the top of the mountain. I mean, who among us would look at ourselves and say, you know, the truth is, out of however many billion people there are in the world, I'm better than everybody. I'm more sinless. My character is better. My thoughts are higher. My ways are more different than anybody on the earth. In fact, I'm close to God. And I would not say that, would you? I would be looking at myself and say, man, how far I've got to go up the mountain. And so as I contemplate that, I might even be left with the question, how do even the best of people reach God? If God's house is in the top of the mountains, and it is, how can I get up that mountain to reach God? Because truthfully, I am not holy in so many respects. And you might say, well, you ought to be. You're a preacher, you know. But when I look at myself and I say, how different am I really? How different are my thoughts? How different are my ways? Oh, sure, there are things that I don't do now that I did years ago. There are ways that I think now that I didn't years ago. That's true. But am I God? Am I near God? I'm nearer, closer. But am I up that mountain at the top looking down on everybody else? I wouldn't say that. And I would hope you wouldn't either. I'm not holy. I'm not, as Isaiah would say, high and lifted up where God is. So how do I reach God? And that's what we want to talk about a little bit this morning. And I want to use three stories, and I'm going to look at them very briefly. But go with me, if you will, to Exodus 3. Now, in Exodus 3, you know this story, and Wes touched upon it, so I'm I'm not going to spend much time here at all. So Exodus 3, here is Moses. And Moses is tending sheep, if you notice at the beginning of chapter 3, for his father-in-law Jethro. And he came to the mountain of God, that is to Horeb. And as he came to that mountain, there was a burning bush. So let's look at the story. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame out of the midst of the bush. And he uh, looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses. And Moses said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. In other words, don't come near. You're walking up here to see this sight. Don't come near. And notice as he goes on to say, Um, put off your shoes from your feet, for the place whereon you stand is holy ground. We sing a couple of songs there in our book. This is holy ground. It's taken from this picture here. And God goes on to say to him in verse 6, Moreover, I am the God of your father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look upon God. And as you notice, that's a natural reaction. Here is Moses, as he's in the presence of God, he encounters God's holiness, and God tells him, I am holy. So everything around you is holy. If I'm here, this ground is holy. Take your shoes off. If you're in my presence, you should be impressed with the holiness that I have. And Moses just hit his face, and that's kind of the idea here. Maybe it was so bright. Maybe he was, in, he was just afraid, and we sometimes want to hide our eyes from seeing something that frightens us. But the point is, God was there. 
And so Moses hid his face. It reminds me, if you notice in Matthew 17, and I won't turn over there, but it, it reminds me of the Mount of Transfiguration. And if you remember, Jesus took Peter and James and John up on the mountain, and Jesus was transfigured before them. So for the one time, the one brief time on earth, He really is seen in His glory. And if you notice, their reaction is the same as Moses. They just fall down and hide themselves. They're afraid. And I believe that's the way it would be for all of us. I don't think if we were able to go up the mountain and face God today, you're not going to be able to do that. You will on Judgment Day, but not in this life. But if we were able to do that, I don't think there's a single one of us, no matter how arrogant I might be, who would not fall to the ground in fear and hide my face from the holiness of God. This is so different. It is so much greater than I am. And just like Moses, that would be my natural reaction. I want to go to the idea, though, in chapter 3 and again in chapter 4, where God answers that. And if you'll drop down to verse 12, when God says to Moses, I will be with you. Moses goes through all of these arguments about how he cannot do what God wants him to do. He's not adequate. He's not good enough. And I think that's natural too. If you and I, and I will say it like this, the more we understand the Word of God, and the more we are impressed with how holy God is, the more inadequate we feel. How how would I ever be worthy of being in heaven with such a God? And God says, I'll be with you. You can get up this mountain. You can come up here where I am. And you'll notice that's the point of this quarter. The call of God to come up to Him. You can do that because I'll be with you. Go with me to the second picture. If you'll turn over to the book of Isaiah, I want to look at Isaiah 6. Now this is another vision of God in Isaiah 6. And this is where Isaiah the prophet sees God. And most people believe this is where Isaiah is called to be a prophet. Now, this is just a picture, and I don't know how well you can see the picture. I deliberately chose one that was kind of obscured and a little blurry because I believe that's the way this vision might have been. In other words, Isaiah is seeing it, and he's seeing all the brightness of God, and yet the smoke fills the temple and all of that kind of thing because God really cannot be seen. He can be seen burning in a bush, a vision of Him. He can be seen like Isaiah sees Him here, obscured, by all of the glory, by all of the smoke that fills the heaven and so forth. But we cannot see God as He is. We can't even approach God as He is in this state and we in the state we're in. So here is Isaiah just falling down before God as he sees this vision. And if you'll notice in Isaiah 6, and let's read verses 1 through 8, and we'll read it very quickly, but it was in the year that King Isaiah died, he said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it, that is above his train, and we understand like a a wedding garment and the train that flows out behind the gown and so forth. Above it stood the seraphim, and each one of the seraphim, and they are angels, of course, they had six wings. With two of them, they covered their face, two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one cried unto another and said, as the song James led for us, and I appreciate that song, 
Because this image and the last one we'll look at, the lyrics in that song are taken directly from these two pictures. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And truthfully, it doesn't matter if we're looking at a surgeon's table and the intricacies of a human body, if we're looking at the magnificent views that we see on a beach and we watch the sunset, or we look out here and we see a tree and we, we just are awed at its power, or a bird flying in the heavens, the whole earth is full of the glory of God. If we see an individual who humbles himself and asks forgiveness, or another who in turn forgives his friend, we see the glory of God. We are not animals. We are products of God. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, and this is the natural reaction, Woe is me, for I am undone, is the idea. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, And then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand. You know, that's the feeling. That's that's the realization that we have. The feeling we have as we're impressed with God's holiness. And the more I look at God, the more I'm inclined to say, I cannot be like that. I am not like that. And God is looking at us and saying, yes, realize the sin you're in. Acknowledge it. Be honest. I am undone, Isaiah says. Woe, judgment to me. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. That's the truth. And I live amongst people who are unclean before God. And that's the truth. I'm completely unworthy. And that's the truth. It's kind of like Peter in Luke 5. You know, Jesus said, go out and fish. Well, we've been out there all night. Well, go back out there and drop your net. And they drop the nets into the same place where they couldn't catch fish all night long. And they catch so many fish, the the nets start to break. And Peter is probably looking back on the shore and saying, whoa. And when he comes back, he just says to Jesus, depart from me. That's the same thing as when Isaiah says, I am undone. Go away from me. Because I'm not worthy. You don't want to be in my presence You are God. You are the Lord. Peter knew that of Jesus. And I'm not worthy. And then this is what God does. One of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah said. Notice that. And he, with a live coal in his hand that he'd taken from the tongs off the altar, from the tongs, with the tongs from off the altar, if I can get it out. He laid it upon my mouth and he said, Lo, this has touched thy lips. And your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. That's what God does. God wants you to realize you are sinful. But God does not want you to stay and wallow in the belief that you are unworthy. We feel like we should. We feel like we're disposed to say, God, I will never be worthy. And that's that's where God says, stop. You will be. You have not been, but you will be. If a person says, how can I ever reach God? I don't deserve to be in heaven. I can't be where God is. I can never be like God. God would say, yes, you can. And you can be with me. 
And you can be fit to be with me. Worthy to be with me. Not that I let you in and keep you in a back room because I'm ashamed of you and I tolerate you for all eternity in heaven. No, I purge your sins. I take away the thing that makes you unworthy. You belong in heaven. And so God says now, you are washed, you are cleansed, you are justified in my sight. You are, notice in 1 Corinthians 6, you are sanctified. You are holified. You are made holy. So here I am, I'm contemplating God. And the seraphim are screaming, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And what God is saying is through the blood of Jesus, you are holy. That's what you are. And so now, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? See, I want to suggest something to you. And I am all quarter long and perhaps all year long. There's something we fight as a Christian. In our humility, we admit our unholiness. We admit how separated we are from God. We admit the sins that separate us and God. But that humility can be carried to a degree God never meant. Where a person begins to say, I cannot be holy. I never will be holy. And then Satan would say, then go the next step. Go ahead, Michael, say it. I never will be good enough, so what's the use? And God would say, stop. The day you were baptized, you were washed, you were sanctified. You were made holy. And you are right in my sight. Now go for me. Be. Live up to what I have called you to be. Be what you are, is the idea. Let's look at one final view. Go with me to Revelation chapter 4. Now I'm going to do a little bit more reading here. But these are short passages. And I just want to scan through a few verses and we'll make a comment or two. And we won't spend a great amount of time here. But let's close by looking at this magnificent scene in Revelation 4 and 5. John is called to look at God. And if you were listening to the words, or if you know the words of the song, Holy, 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 again, the imagery is in these chapters. So watch for it. John said, After this I looked, chapter 4, verse 1 of Revelation. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, And the first voice that I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me that said, Come up hither. Come up here, is the idea. And I will show you things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And so this image that I finally decided upon is of people being in the presence, seeing that throne, in a sense of a vision, but seeing it. And one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow around the throne, and the sight he was likened to an emerald. And he's just piling up images of things that are bright and beautiful and colorful, and as if to say the most pleasant thing you could ever see. And round about the throne were 24 seats. Notice that. We'll come back to that in a moment. Twenty-four seats, and on the seats I saw twenty-four elders sitting, and they were clothed in white raiment. Throughout the book of Revelation, you begin to realize that the ones who are clothed in white raiment, 
cleansed, clean clothes are Christians. And I believe they are here. If you look in the Bible, and you can go home and look at, look at this if you want to. Wes knows I'm about to say this. I, for a long time, you know, together with everybody else, wondered what are these 24? Why 24? Is it 12, you know, is it the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, the 12 sons of Jacob, 12 apostles? And that always bothered me. And I could never see that here. And then I happened upon a passage somewhere that said there are 24 courses or orders of priests. And if you notice in Revelation, Christians are pictured on the throne together with Jesus and in the mind of God already there. They are priests of God. I believe that's what we're seeing here. So let's notice and see if maybe it could describe Christians here. There were 24 seats, and upon the seats I saw 24 elders sitting. And incidentally, elder can be used for an old person, but it also can be used for a mature and wise individual. So it doesn't have to do with age. So he says, sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of of, of fire burning before the throne. And that's the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a glass like unto, uh, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. So the crystal sea, as we just sang about. And in the midst of the throne and round about it were four beasts, or four living creatures full of eyes before and behind. And then he describes the different faces of these. And these apparently are the cherubim, because, I mean the seraphim that we just read in Isaiah 6. For notice verse 8. The four living creatures had each of them six wings, like we saw in Isaiah 6. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come, just like we sing in the song. And when those living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne that lives forever and ever, also the 24 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne. And they worship him that lives forever and ever. And they cast their golden crowns, as we sang in the song, down before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord. To receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things and for your pleasure they are and were created. And that's the image here. It is of, I believe, Christians gathered before God who in the mind of God are already there. You are in heaven. On the throne. Together with Jesus. Priests. Serving God. Already crowned with glory and honor. Already in the mind of God, worthy to be there, but what you feel is that only God is worthy. And that's the the dichotomy of Christianity. I know I will be there. I have faith in that. God has told me, He's assured me, and yet I'm so impressed with the holiness of God that all I want to do is fall down. All I want to do is lay my crown down at His feet and say, God, You deserve all the glory. It wasn't me. It was You. And so in chapter 5, I saw in the right hand of Him that sat on the throne a book that was written front and back and sealed with seven seals. And this angel begins to question and says, Who is able? Who has the power to break these seals is the idea. Nobody. Verse 3, no one in heaven, no one in earth, not even under the earth, was able to open it, not even to look at it. And verse 4, I wept much 
Because no man was found worthy. And I think that's the point here. The worthiness. And we look at ourselves this way. No man was found worthy to open and to read the book, not even to look at it. And one of the elders said unto me, Don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, unquestionably, this is Jesus. He has prevailed to open the book, to break the seals, to loose the seals thereof. And I saw, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of those four living creatures, those seraphim, in the middle midst of all the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, who had horns and seven eyes, and those are the seven spirits of God that are sent forth. And he came, verse 7, and took the book out of the right hand of him, the Father, that sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders, they just all fell down before him. They're worshiping him. And every one of them is singing and they're playing upon their hearts figuratively. And of course we know in the New Testament, literally your heart. And they're singing this song. And they're saying, you, verse 9, are worthy to take the book, to open the seals, because you were slain. Not me. I didn't do it. You did it. You were slain. And you redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tribe and tongue and people on the earth. And you made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. You did all that. I don't deserve a crown. Let me take my crown and cast it down at your feet. You have all authority. You are the great God. And I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the living creatures and the elders. He heard all beings that serve God. And the number of them was a myriad, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And they all said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and glory and honor and strength and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and even in the sea, all of them cried out blessing and honor and glory and power to Him that sits on the throne, to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four seraphim said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders just fell down and worshipped Him that lives forever and ever. That's where we are before God. The Lamb has redeemed us to God. Where we could not climb the mountain, the Lamb reached down and pulled us up. Close with me, if you will, in Colossians chapter 1. When I came off the streets and I obeyed the gospel, one of the first passages I stumbled across was Colossians 1. And while there were a lot of things in Romans, I've told you often, that was the first book I decided to read. Boy, <laughs> just dive right in, right? But Colossians I could understand. And I can remember sitting on a tree stump out in the woods, and it was pretty quiet, just kind of me there alone with God and reading this passage. And this is where God says, Having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him, by Jesus, of course, to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And then He turns to us. And you, who were sometimes alienated, separated is the idea, and enemies even, in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death, now notice, to present you holy and without blame 
and without approach, reproach in his sight. Holy, the word means unblemished. I love that. Because God is saying to you, everything you think that is wrong with you, the blood of Jesus takes that away. Do you understand that? You're holy. You are above reproach. Oh, Satan will reproach you. You will reproach yourself. And the word is a legal term that has to do with charges that are formally brought against you. And for every charge, God answers the blood of Jesus. Charges dismissed the blood of Jesus. That's why when we understand that, we cast our crowns down and just honor Jesus. I don't do anything. All I did was have faith in the Son of God who came down here to do what I could not do for myself. How can the best ever reach God? Through Jesus. It begins with the first step. So if you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel, today you can be washed, sanctified, justified in the name of our Lord. Acknowledge your faith in Jesus. Repent. Be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. Won't you please come?